0: Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Let's start the class and learn the lessons. So welcome to our Catechism class, especially to this very special extended edition of the Catechism class. We're going to be looking at the proofs of the resurrection as we continue to prepare ourselves to consider Lord's Day 17, question 45 in the Heidelberg Catechism. In his commentary on this Lord's Day, Zacharias Ursinus chooses to spend time establishing the historical factuality of the resurrection of Jesus, before taking up the points made in the Catechism itself, dealing with how the resurrection affects and impacts and blesses the believer. The Catechism assumes that we will already be assured of the importance and historicity of the resurrection event. We're simply following his example, or Sinus's example. In our last podcast, we looked at why a firm and confident belief in the risen Saviour is essential for our proclamation of the gospel, for our personal religion, and for our eternal hope. So we need proof. We need to know that Jesus rose from the dead for sure, without any doubt. So we're going to spend this episode reminding ourselves of the classic proofs of the resurrection. Now, as I've already said, it's a longer-than-usual episode, for I want to bring you as much biblical text as I can fit into a podcast. And because of this, I'm splitting it into two parts. If you're listening on a CD, these two parts will be two separate tracks, so that you can pause the CD after track one if you wish, and then begin later at track two. The online podcast will have just a musical interlude. So let's see what Luke means in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, when he wrote, To whom also he, Jesus, showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. Back in 1930 a man called Frank Morrison wrote a book, he called it Who Moved the Stone. It's not the book he actually intended to write, but it was a success and it's still in print today. The man was a writer who wanted to examine the final days of Jesus and write about them, and he was highly sceptical of the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. But he did accept that Jesus was arrested, was tried and was crucified. He just wanted to examine that period of the life of Christ. But as he read and researched, he actually discovered that the evidence for the actual resurrection was so compelling that he abandoned his sceptical views and became a believer. To this day, that book is a good primer on the legal and evidential arguments for the resurrection. The proofs are infallible. They are indisputable. They would stand up in any court. Let's look at some of them. Let's ask a question. Do you really believe that Jesus has risen from the dead? I hope you do. Lots of people today scoff at the idea. Liberal clergymen will try to explain it away, perhaps, like they do with the miracles of Jesus. So why do we believe the literal bodily resurrection of Christ? How do we explain this belief to unbelievers? Let's remind ourselves that the proofs for the resurrection are objective. Sometimes people may think that the grounds for this Christian belief is the saving certain effect that it has upon the heart of a believer. You know how it goes. You will hear someone giving an exciting testimony of saving grace. And they will say something like, I know Jesus is alive because of my personal experience. He has changed my life. The problem with that, of course, is that it is entirely subjective. I know he lives because I feel it in my heart. It's common among evangelicals. We used to sing a Christian hymn, I serve a risen saviour he's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I feel him all around me. I know his tender care, and just the time I need him, he's always there. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and he talks with me, a long life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Now, quite frankly, if that's the only proof of the resurrection that we have, personal experience, then to be honest, it's no proof at all. It won't convince anybody but oneself. Atheists could give exactly the same rationale for not believing. They could give a testimony of sorts too saying how liberating it has been for them to be free of any beliefs in God, how how their lives have been changed, how they have a, a wonderful new life. They may even put a wee fish sticker on the bumper of their car with the word Darwin stuck inside the fish. Mormons speak about the burning in the bosom as their reason for believing on their false prophet Joseph Smith and their false religion. No, personal experience is just that. It is personal experience. It is something that cannot be experienced by anyone else, something that cannot be proven as fact. So what are the reasons, the factual reasons, to believe in the risen Jesus? Let's look at some objective, scientific, provable facts of the resurrection. Number one, the proof of changed lives. You see, there must have been some dramatic event that turned cowering disciples into mighty apostles and powerful preachers and passionate evangelists and dynamic leaders. In the early parts of the Gospel records, we see them as weak sinners, letting the Lord down continually. Look at the interchange between Jesus and Peter in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offence unto me, for thou savourest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And we all know the story of Peter's denial after the arrest of Jesus. And we know about Thomas, who was full of doubt, and James and John, concerned over their position in the apostolic group. Mark chapter 10 and verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one at thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. To say that they had moments of disappointment would probably be an understatement. Yet in Acts they are different men. They are reinvigorated. They are changed. They are dynamic. They were men who could in faith say to a disabled man, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Men who like Stephen the martyr, Literally some months after the death and resurrection of Jesus, around AD 34, would willingly give his own life rather than deny the risen Christ. Is this in any way consistent with men who are living out a lie? Stephen lived and died in Jerusalem. He would have known the facts of the resurrection and so would someone die if they knew what they were dying for was all untrue. If the tomb of Christ was not empty, why would Stephen make that dying declaration in Acts 7 and 56, saying, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And there were many more martyrs to die for Christ in the following years and right up to this day. The greatly changed lives of the disciples and followers of Jesus are a significant and powerful witness to their exposure to some life-changing event. Something that is so significant that it impacts their lives thereafter. And I believe that that event is the bodily resurrection of Jesus. The empty tomb. Let's move on to look at some more tangible evidence. Let's look at the proof of the missing body. Because we're taught in the Scriptures that when some women came to the tomb on the first day of the week to anoint the body of Jesus with spices, they discovered that that tomb was empty, vacant, deserted. Let's read some Bible passages. Let's read from John 20, verse 1-2, a familiar passage. On the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have led him. Luke 24 in verse 1 to 7 Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulchre bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulchre and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. The gospel writers attest to the empty tomb. Well, of course, there will be those who will try to explain it away. Historically, three main objections have been raised by unbelievers, both outside and within the visible church. Before we look at them, let's read Matthew 27, verse 62. Now the next day, that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Now, keep those verses in mind as we look at these objections. Objection number one is that the body wasn't there because the disciples must have removed it. But then this is what the priests were anticipating might happen in Matthew 27. That the disciples of Jesus might come and steal the body. So they made a request to Pilate that the tomb be guarded by Roman legionaries. And Pilate agreed to that demand. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as ye can. Now these Roman soldiers were strictly bound to do their duty. The Roman legionnaire was no sloppy dad's army type. They were honour bound to do their duty to the death. The penalty for failing to do their duty was a terrible death. When tasked with guarding a tomb, they would have been assiduous. They would have been conscientious in carrying out that task in the extreme. No one could have moved that stone. No one could have taken that body. Furthermore, if the disciples could have gathered themselves together, remember that with one exception they had been noticeably absent from Golgotha's hill as that crucifixion took place. But even if they could have somehow plucked up the courage to mount an attack on a Roman guard and steal the body, why then in such a short time would they have been prepared to lay down their own lives in defence of what they knew to be a blatant lie? A lie that they themselves had perpetrated. So there is no plausible reason to believe that the disciples stole the dead body of Jesus from that time. The second objection that's usually made is that the Romans must have removed it. That's the second argument. That's usually made by those who deny the literal resurrection. What if Pilate himself had ordered the secret removal of the body? But just shortly afterwards when the peace was being disturbed in Jerusalem, why then would the Romans not simply have said that they have the remains of Jesus? In recent studies in the book of Acts that we have been doing, we have learned about the very assiduous record-keeping that characterised the local Roman administrations. For example, in Acts chapter 25, The Roman governor Festus was worried about sending accurate accounts of charges laid against Paul back to the authorities in Rome. In Acts chapter 25 and verse 20, he says, And because I doubted of such manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem, and there be judged of these matters. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not withal to signify the crimes laid against him. In the Roman Empire, everything was accurately recorded every decision, every trial, every event, and those records were preserved, and there was constant reporting back to Rome, right up to the level of the emperor himself. And why did later emperors? when they were finding Christianity so troublesome, why did they not simply produce the written record of Pilate's order to confiscate the body of Jesus? Wouldn't that have stopped the spread of Christianity right away? But they didn't, because there was no such record, for no such decision was made, though Romans hadn't removed the body. The third objection is that the Jews must have removed it. Yet how many times in Acts and all throughout the life of the primitive church did church leaders clash with the Jewish leaders, both in Jerusalem and further afield in the diaspora. One of the charges, one of the few charges that Felix and Festus, the successive Roman governors of Judea, could grasp that was made by the Jews against the apostle Paul was that he was preaching and speaking and teaching about a man who had died and who had risen from the dead. Acts 24 and verse 20 Or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me, while I stood before the council, except it be for this one voice, that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead. I am called in question by you this day. Acts 25 and verse 19. But he had certain questions against them of their own superstition and of one Jesus which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. The Jews wanted the Romans to condemn Paul to death, mainly because he was preaching the risen Christ. Now here's the point. If that was the Jewish issue, why did they not simply tell these governors, Felix and Festus, that they have the body? That was all they had to do. If it was they who removed the body from the tomb, why then did Saul of Tarsus waste all that energy persecuting the church if the Jews had taken the body? As a Jew, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, a passionate hater of Christianity— Why then later when Paul confronted with the risen Christ on the Damascus road not simply say to whoever stood before him you can't be Jesus because we the Jews took his body. The simple reason was the Jews hadn't taken the body of Jesus or have possession of it. So the disciples didn't remove it. The Romans didn't remove it. And the Jews didn't remove it, but it wasn't there. And there can only be one conclusion. When the body of Jesus was removed from that tomb on that very first Lord's Day morning, it was not any human agency that removed it. It was not the disciples, it was not the Romans, and it was not the Jews. We're going to move on to other interesting proofs. But because this episode is quite long, we're going to pause here. For a short break. We're going to allow you time to replenish your cup of coffee. As the real podcast hosts say, we'll be right back. Oh. Okay, we're back and we've looked already at two proofs for the historical resurrection of Christ. Changed lives and a missing body. Now we come to one of the most interesting proofs of all. So I want to read with you John chapter 20, verse 3, down to verse 9. John chapter 20, verse 3, down to verse 9. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple... And came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. Now the verse to look closely at is verse 7. Read the detail in the verse very carefully. It says, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. From that, we can see that when Peter and John arrived at the tomb that morning, they saw something that was so amazing, so startling, that it jerked them into belief. John especially. John came into the sepulcher and he saw And he believed. Something that John saw was totally convincing. What was it? Let's first of all look at two facts. Let's think about ancient burial customs among the Jews. In John 19 verse 38 down to verse 42, after this Joseph of Arimathea verse 39, there came also Nicodemus which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight, First 40, then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths with spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid. And they laid Jesus therefore because of the Jews' preparation day for the sepulchre was nigh at hand. Joseph took the broken, wounded body of Jesus from the cross and wound it in linen cloths, sprinkling spices into the folds, as was the manner of the Jews. The head was dealt with separately. It was wound in a kind of a linen turban, which ended in a cloth going down the back of the neck the face and the front of the neck were left bare except for a strip of linen which was positioned in such a way that it supported the chin and the purpose of that was to hold the mouth of the deceased closed in the new testament in the av this headcloth is referred to as a napkin the second fact that we want to bring forward is that Jesus' resurrection was not a resuscitation. Let's be clear about that. Jesus did not simply swoon on the cross and lapse into unconsciousness or into a coma and then come back to consciousness in the stone coolness of the tomb. There was no doubt that he was dead when those two men removed him from the site of execution. You had the torture, The beating, the crucifixion, the spear in his side, the exposure to the parching heat of the sun and finally his being laid on the cold stone slab. Jesus was dead and he did not simply sit up and rise to his feet, push away the door and dander out of the tomb. His resurrected physical body was changed. Now I want you to see carefully some examples of this because he unexpectedly appeared beside two disciples walking along the road to Amos. In Luke 24 and verse 15, It came to pass that while they had communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were holden that they should not know him. That was after he had risen from the dead. He also startled his disciples with an unexpected visit. And look at how that happened in Luke 24, verse 33. They rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven gathered together, and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things they had done in the way, and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. And as they thus spoke... Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And look at John chapter 20 and verse 19. Here's an interesting one. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews came Jesus and stood in the midst. He walked through closed doors. Now let's think this through. A man who can do all these things, a man who can walk through closed doors, can walk out of grave clothes. Let's go back to John 11 verse 44 and think about the resurrection of the man called Lazarus. He that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him, and let him go. When Lazarus came out of the tomb, he was wearing the shroud. He was still bound around the head with the traditional face napkin, but not Jesus. He was changed. He was not resuscitated, he was resurrected. He was not brought back to life, but changed as we also will be changed at his return. 1 Corinthians 15 So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Verse 43. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So what happened that startled John into belief that day at the empty tomb? If Jesus didn't simply... Get up off the bench and walk away, with the grave clothes still around him. What did John see? Did he see a thrown-off, discarded pile of linen, lying in a heap in the corner of the tomb? Or did he see the linen, all neatly folded up and ready for some future use? No, neither of those things. What John saw was a sight that must have utterly shocked him. Because where the body of Jesus had been laid, the grave clothes were lying, still in the shape of the body, still totally undisturbed. There was only one difference. There was no body in them. And the key fact here is the head cloth. Between the shroud and the napkin was a gap. It specifically says so, where the neck would have been. The turban-like napkin had retained its characteristic rounded shape. This complicated criss pattern of bandages, all wound and wrapped together. John 20 verse 7 again. The napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, that's where the neck would have been, but wrapped together, wound together, in a place by itself. The Greek word there is enteliso, twirled, and that's what shocked John. The headcloth was still all wrapped together, all twirled into its characteristic shape in the manner of the Jews for burial of the dead, totally undisturbed, but with no head inside it. The stone has been rolled away. The body is missing, but the grave clothes are lying on the slab, undisturbed, still wrapped, only now they're wrapped around nothing. Is it any wonder John believed? And as if that wasn't proof enough, there is one more useful piece of evidence, and it's the proof of the witnesses. The eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Jesus made at least ten separate post resurrection appearances that we know of. So there were witnesses. There was Mary Magdalene. There was the woman at the tomb. There was Peter. There were the two disciples. There were the ten in the upper room. There was the eleven including Thomas. There was five hundred followers. He appeared to James, he appeared to the disciples at the Ascension. I'm sure there were others. Now why would all of these witnesses tell such stories? What on earth was their state of mind? That's an essential element in establishing the credibility of any witness. What was the witness's state of mind at the time when they witnessed that event? Some people will think they may simply have invented the stories. They simply concocted them, either as a large group of people or individually. But read the accounts. These aren't myths. These aren't fairy tales. There's nothing in these that sounds fictitious. They are super graphic eyewitness accounts. They ring true. They sound real. If we had been telling these stories as fiction, we would probably have avoided the complicated jigsaw of chronology that's presented in the Gospels. We would have got our story together well in advance. We would have watered down the fears and the scepticism of the disciples of Jesus. And since the whole of the New Testament thereafter is grounded in the factual resurrection, would the eyewitnesses like Peter and John and James have simply forgotten at that stage that they'd simply invented a lie? But then some will ask... Were these eyewitnesses not just deluded? You see, they'd been through a terribly traumatic time. They were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Had the trauma of the crucifixion not left the disciples under such severe mental stress that they were at this time simply succumbing to wishful thinking? Psychiatrists will sometimes say that in order for a person to hallucinate, to see something that's not there, there are two factors that need to be present they need to be experiencing profound inward desire and there needs to be favorable external conditions in the gospel both those factors are absent the disciples find the account of the resurrection difficult to accept in Luke chapter 24 and verse 10 it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna And Mary, the mother of James, and the other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. And Thomas was anything but deluded. There was no wishful thinking here. In fact, he was highly sceptical. John 20 and verse 25. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's a fairly sceptical statement. Verse 26. After eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then he saith unto Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing.' these people were totally irrational. The favorable external conditions criteria can't be met either, for these hallucinations, so called, happened in such a variety of places not just one place, where the memory or the subconscious longing would be triggered. He appeared to individuals. He appeared to groups and to crowds. He appeared in gardens and by the sea, in a room, on a road, on a mountain, in Jerusalem. If these stories were not invented, or if they were not hallucinations, there must and can be only one explanation, and that is that they were true. So let's hear the testimony of some of these eyewitnesses. The primitive church in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things common. And with great power give the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It's what they talked about. Peter in Acts chapter 3 and verse 26. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you. In turning every one of you from his iniquities, Peter is preaching to crowds of people in Jerusalem who had just witnessed the healing of a paralyzed man. And he refers to the resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't see any need to explain further. He just refers to the resurrection as a fact that everyone would know because within 24 hours of the event, the resurrection of Christ would simply have been common knowledge in Jerusalem. It was, an historical fact which speak for itself. James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, was a cold and sceptical man during the earthly ministry of Christ. He was offended by Christ. Strangely, after the resurrection, He became a believer, a pastor, a church leader. Saul of Tarsus, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7 to 9. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, and am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul was in a unique position. He knew the facts. He was on the Sanhedrin. He was the zealot who was persecuting the church. Paul could have blown apart any fake resurrection scam. Yet he endured a life of hardship following and serving the risen Lord whom he met on the Damascus road. Now listen to how he describes his Christian life and ministry and the experiences that he had in Second Corinthians 11. Reading at verse 23. He says he was, in labours more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in death soft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often in hunger and thirst, in fastings often in cold and nakedness. Who would endure all of that? If the basis of your faith for which you are so being abused is all a baseless fraud. Paul knew Jesus is alive. Okay, so we have looked at some of the empirical evidence for the literal physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Now anyone who is considering the evidence with an open mind and receptive to the truth must surely agree that without doubt our Lord Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's a provable fact. So now that we have established that fact we can then and only then add the subjective evidence that we know he lives because we have met him personally. As Paul wrote to the Colossians in Colossians 1 and 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Which is Christ in you? The hope of glory. Well thanks for being so patient and listening for so long. We'll continue to look at Lord's Day 17. Dealing with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in our next catechism class Don't miss it